Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text is verses 1 through 10, which if you picked up one of the Red Bibles is on page 966. And if you're able, one more time, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as our guarantee." So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, you will tell us later in this very book that your power is demonstrated in our weakness. In our weakness, your power is made known. So I ask this morning in my own weakness, which I know so well, Would you demonstrate your power in the preaching of your word? May it be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power. May our hearing of your word and and hearts being moved by your word be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power as well. Would you do all in this moment that you desire to do for our good and for your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's odd what sticks in your mind when you are a kid. I grew up going to Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Arlington, Kentucky. I've shared before my dad, for some reason, after a couple of girls, was desperate for a son and prayed that if God would give him a son, he would take him to church every Sunday morning. And so I grew up, without exception, unless I was sick, going to church every Sunday morning. And in those early years, it was at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Arlington, Kentucky. There are a number of things I remember about the church. I remember that between Sunday school and the service, a bunch of men gathered out on the front porch to smoke. We were in western Kentucky. I I used to think that the break between Sunday school and the service was solely for smoking. Aspired one day when I would be old enough to gather with them. Not only that, I remember that our choir on Sunday morning was actually just made up of whoever decided to come forward and sit in the choir loft that day. My Aunt Dorothy, if you were close to her, there was a good chance she was going to drag your arm and then rope you in, take you up there to sing. But one of the things I remember most actually relates to a sermon I never heard. 
You see, we moved to eastern Kentucky eventually, and so we would travel back uh, periodically on the weekends. Uh, The reason we would travel back is because both my mom and dad's parents still live there. So the way it typically worked is on Friday afternoon when I got out of school, when dad got off of work, we would drive back to western Kentucky, spend the night there Friday and Saturday, get up and go to church on Sunday, and then after church on Sunday, we would head back. It was about a five-hour drive back. We were going from central back to eastern time. And so we were pretty prompt at getting on the road right after the service. But I remember one Sunday we were there, and on that particular Sunday morning when we walked into church, we found out that that day there was going to be an evangelist preaching. And if you grew up in a setting like mine, the evangelist was like a rock star. Uh, this was a guy that would travel town to town, and he would come in and he would preach on a, maybe a Sunday morning, Sunday night, a few nights during the week. He would preach oftentimes, it seemed to me, more impressive sermons than the regular pastor did. After all, he could take four or five sermons and preach them as best ones, right, and go town to town. And I thought, man, this is what every kid, I think, aspired to be, the traveling evangelist. Come into a town, preach a few great sermons, get an offering at the end of it all, leave and go to the next town and do it all over again. And so when I got news that Sunday morning that there was an evangelist preaching, I was actually quite excited. I even remember the evangelist's name. His name was Don Short, which was ironic because he was about my height. And he had a mustache, which in the early 80s made you quite cool. And I was anxious to hear him, but oddly enough, I don't remember to this day anything that he preached that morning. What I do remember is what he said at the end of the service. When the service ended that Sunday morning, Don was trying to rally everyone to come back Sunday night. If you've, if you've been to, uh, you know, churches that have Sunday morning, Sunday evening services, you know why. It's typically about a third of the crowd finds their way back on that Sunday evening. And so in order to rally the crowd to come back that Sunday evening, Don said, tonight I want to ask a question and answer it that a number of you may ask. A number of you may have been wondering what is it that happens to a Christian in the very moment that we die? And whatever had maybe been distracting me throughout the service, whether I was talking to friends or whatever it was, in that moment, he had me. I was so gripped because I didn't know that I knew the answer to that question and I wanted to know. I was so gripped that I actually walked up to my dad after the service ended and said, is there any way that we can rearrange our travel schedule to be here tonight? And my dad assured me we cannot. He had to work the next morning. So we got in the car and left. I don't know what he ended up saying that night. I don't know what text he even preached from. But over the years, as I've grown in my Bible knowledge and remembered that moment in my upbringing I've often wondered if it was this text that we're looking at this morning that Don Short took up that night. Because this text, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, answers so many questions. It answers questions like, what is our ultimate hope as believers? Why is it that we need resurrected bodies? What kind of certainty do we have that we're going to get a resurrection body? What happens to us if we die before the resurrection? Or how should we live until that day? All these questions are answered for us in these 10 verses. And so what I want to do this morning 
is answer the question that I was anxiously waiting to hear the answer for when I was a young kid and several others as we walked through this text. In fact, that's how I want to frame this text, simply in a question-answer format. I want to pose a question and give the answer that the text gives. So the first question and answer I want to give, the question is this, what is our ultimate hope as believers? And Paul's going to answer that by showing that our ultimate hope is the resurrection of our bodies. What is our ultimate hope as believers? The resurrection of our bodies. Now, you may remember, and this is one of the blessings of of working your way straight through the book of the Bible, that Paul has been talking about the body prior to this text, right? He's he's mentioned that we are the one, the very vessels who have the gospel, the life-changing power of God, this treasure we have, Paul says, in jars of clay. Referring to our bodies in that way is referring to the fragile and frail nature of our bodies. But Paul hasn't simply referred to our bodies as if they are fragile and frail. He's actually noted in chapter 4, verse 16, that we are wasting away. Something that we all know, no doubt, and feel. And so that then raises a question, doesn't it? What if our bodies are destroyed? I mean, some of the Corinthians maybe could be listening to Paul and saying, Paul, you've been telling us to press on despite everything it cost us. But everything it's cost you hasn't ultimately taken your life. Yes, you've been beaten, but ultimately you walked away. You've been shipwrecked, but it did not lead to your drowning. Paul, have you actually contemplated? What if following Christ costs you your life? What if your body is destroyed? What then? And Paul answers in our text, noting in verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, when you look at that verse, you may say, well, not so fast, right? We've been talking about our bodies. Paul Paul doesn't mention the word bodies one time here. He's rather talking about a tent or earthly home or a building kept in the heavens. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you understand that Paul is using here a metaphor then I think the text gets much clearer. Paul is using a metaphor of a tent to picture our present earthly bodies that are like jars of clay that are wasting away. I think the reason he uses a tent for that is because a tent is by nature temporary, isn't it? They don't, they don't last forever. They, they waste away. They wear out. Whereas then he pictures our heavenly bodies, our our bodies that we will have at the resurrection, at the return of Jesus Christ, he pictures as a building. A building is something that is a more permanent, eternal structure. And I think the reason that Paul's using this very metaphor, a tent and the temple, to picture the body, is because of the very text that we opened the service with. In fact, Paul is even more so picking up on Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, when individuals are coming and they're bringing accusations against Jesus, false accusations against him, you'll remember one of them took Jesus' words when he said, the text we read from John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. In Mark 14, 57, they're, they're, they're turning Jesus' quote as if he's saying something he didn't say, and they said, in an accusation to Jesus, he said he will destroy this temple. And in three days, he will, he will raise it up. A, a temple made without hands. That's their quote. 
So when Paul then writes about a building from God, a house not made with hands, I think he's picking up on this very imagery that Jesus uses because John makes clear in John chapter 2 that when Jesus referred to the temple, he was referring to his body. So I think Paul's mind works this way. If Jesus' body was pictured in the temple, then I'm going to use this imagery of the tabernacle, which was a tent, a tent and a permanent building, as his metaphor for our bodies. Now, if you understand that, then you go back to verse 1 and read it, and it makes sense. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly bodies, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, that is if we die, we have a building from God, a resurrected body that's coming to us, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, What this means is, this is our ultimate hope as believers. What is it as believers we ultimately long for? The answer is this. We long for the day when Jesus Christ will return, because on that day, He will raise our bodies from the grave if we have died, or if we are alive, He will instantly transform our bodies into resurrected bodies that are no longer tainted by sin or by death or wasting away in any way. Now, the reason I say this is our ultimate hope is because sometimes we can talk as if our ultimate hope is to get away from this body. We don't have to convince one another that our bodies are wasting away or they're decaying, but we sometimes hope and act or talk as if my great hope is to get away from this body. Paul says, my hope is not to be bodiless, ultimately. He's going to say in verse 4, using another metaphor, while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Then he says, not that we would be unclothed, that is, not that we would be bodiless, but that we would be further clothed. In other words, the believer's ultimate hope is not to be away from our bodies. Now, yes, there is a good state coming if we die. We'll talk about that in a second. But the believer's ultimate hope is the resurrected body. I grew up my entire childhood thinking that the ultimate goal for the believer was to be away from my body and my soul being with the Lord, somehow floating around. But that's not the image the Bible gives The ultimate hope for the believer is that our bodies themselves are made new and that we live forever in a new creation, a new earth, a world that is untouched by sin, that is made perfect, and our bodies themselves made perfect so that we can live with the Lord in a physical new creation forever. That's the ultimate hope for the believer. So that's the first question Paul asked and answered. What's our ultimate hope as believers? The resurrection of the body. But this raises another question, doesn't it? Number two, why do we need resurrected bodies? And the answer, because our present bodies are frail and decaying. Why do we need resurrected bodies? Because our present bodies are frail and decaying. Now, the reality is you're probably only asking this question if you're under 30. Most of us know exactly why we need resurrected bodies. We feel it, don't we? This is why Paul has used the language, we are wasting away. Everyone's nodding their head, right? Well, in verses 2 through 4, Paul expands on this a little bit and says, as long as we are in these bodies, while they are wasting away and decaying, we find ourselves groaning. Here's what he says in verses 2 through 4. For in this tent, again, our earthly bodies, we groan. 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That would be our resurrection bodies. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now again, one of the tricky things here is that Paul not only uses a metaphor, the tent for the earthly body, the building for the resurrection body, but now he mixes his metaphors. He introduces another metaphor. He starts off this verse still talking about the tent and the building. But you'll notice by the time we get to the end, he's talking about our bodies as if they're clothing, a garment that we put on. And and what Paul says is, uh, this earthly body is like a garment that we put on that we're ultimately going to take off. But we do not want to be found to be naked or unclothed. We want to be found to be further clothed. That is, our bodies, earthly bodies removed, our resurrection bodies given. But when he speaks of this, it is very clear why we long for these bodies. We groan. And and Paul gives us two different reasons we groan. In verse 2, we groan longing for our heavenly dwelling. In verse 4, he says, we groan being burdened. In other words, as we live this life, we know that we are meant for more than a body that simply wastes away. And if that's what your heart yearns for and longs for and groans for, that is a heavenly and biblical longing. It is a glorious and great longing to say, I want a body that doesn't wear out. I want a body that functions properly. The reason we groan and long for more is because the wasting away of this body is very clear. In Ecclesiastes, which we looked at not too many years ago, in the last chapter, everybody knows that, uh, perhaps remembers that the preacher of the book says, remember your creator in your youth. But the reason he says that, he gives a very practical reason. Because the older we get, the more our bodies waste away. He he describes our aging, Solomon does, in terms of as we grow older, we we lose stability in our legs. He describes us hunching forward, losing our teeth, losing our sight, losing our hearing, losing sexual desire, becoming afraid of heights, and finding it hard to sleep. And that's just a few things. Why is it that we need resurrected bodies? Because the bodies we know on this side of Genesis 3 were never purposed in their present decaying state to inherit eternity. The Lord has something more for us, a glorious resurrected body to come. But this then raises a third question. How can we be sure we'll get a resurrected body? How can we be sure that we'll get a resurrected body? If if this is the believer's great hope, then how do we know for sure it's coming? And the answer is that we already have the Spirit. Now, one thing that's clear in our text is that Paul is confident. He knows that resurrected body is coming. Look at this wording again in verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, Paul, how do you know this? Or maybe more importantly, we're asking Paul, how can we know this? How can we have such certainty in our own hearts to know that that resurrected body will be mine? And Paul answers us in verse 5. Here's what he writes. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee? The answer to this question is that we already have the Spirit. But in some ways, I think we might argue that doesn't make sense. How do I know I'm going to get a resurrected body? And the answer is, I already have the Spirit. The reason that may not make sense to us is that we don't understand why those two things are connected. Why does me, or why do, why do you and I, having the Spirit of God indwelling us, in any way provide me certainty that you and I will have a resurrected body? Well, here's Paul's argument. When he says that God has prepared us by giving us the Spirit as a guarantee, he means more, I think, by that, by that wording, guarantee, he means more than simply a promise or a verbal pledge. Now, that would be enough. If God said to us, this is going to happen, that's enough. God said it, done deal. Because God can be trusted. He's always true and trustworthy. But I think Paul means more than that. When he says that the Lord has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, I think he's picturing something more like a down payment. You know how a down payment works. Let's say you buy a house and you owe $100,000 on the house. And so uh, the bank says you owe us then $100,000 for the house because you borrowed that money, but you put a down payment. You put maybe $20,000 down, and that $20,000 is a portion of what more is to come. I think that's what Paul is saying here. The Spirit is like a down payment on what is to come because the Spirit is the beginning experience for us of what the age to come will be like. In the age to come, there will be life, and there will be righteousness, and there will be everything that is good and honors the Lord and characterizes His heart toward us. Well, when the Lord gives us His Holy Spirit, He's already letting us get a taste of that experience now, as if, as if He's put down 20% now in our hearts, right? By letting us experience the Holy Spirit, because what the Spirit does in us is He gives us life. A foretaste of the life to come. He gives us a desire for righteousness, a desire that will be uncorrupted on that day. We will only desire righteousness. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's actually giving us the beginning of the experience now by giving us the, the, the Holy Spirit. And he says if he's giving us the down payment now, then we can know for certain that what he has promised is indeed to come and will be ours what this means is every time you see the marks and the effects of the Spirit of God in your life, when you find yourself groaning to walk in greater intimacy with the Lord, let that be a reminder to you. This is a reminder to me that the resurrection's coming and it will be mine. The resurrection body is certain because God's already given me a foretaste, the first fruits of it, by giving me His Holy Spirit. But all this talk then about the resurrection body raises a fourth question. It is the question that I wanted to know that one Sunday morning as a young child. What if we die before the resurrection? Doesn't this question rise as you're reading this, these, these verses, this explanation of, of our ultimate hope being the resurrection body, the body that we'll receive at the return of Christ? But the question is this. If I lose, if this body is destroyed, Paul mentioned that in verse 1, if this body is destroyed and the body that I'm going to get at the resurrection only comes with the return of Christ, 
then what if I die before the return of Christ? Or maybe, as we think about our loved ones, what about those who have died in Christ and we know that Jesus has not yet returned? What happens to them or what will happen to us if we die before the resurrection? And the answer is that we will be with the Lord. Here's what Paul writes in verses 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. You see Paul's language there. As as long as we live in this body that's wasting away, we live in this age, we live on this earth that bears the marks of the curse from Genesis 3, as long as we live in this body, we are away from the Lord. Now, this is not Paul's way of saying the Lord is not present with us or we do not have the indwelling spirit. But what he means is we're away from the Lord uh, in the sense that we are not as present with the Lord as we one day will be. We're not as, as, as close to the Lord as we one day will experience. There is a greater intimacy with the Lord that we long for. And Paul says that when we are with Him, it will be like we who have been away from home have come home. That's the language he uses. So, for, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. I'm mean, sorry, uh, verse 6 rather. Uh, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And then he writes this. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So it seems that what Paul is saying is the experience of the believer when we die is yes, to leave this body, to be away from this body. But do not be deceived. To go away from this body isn't a worst state, it is rather a better one. We are at home with the Lord, Paul says. In fact, he says in verse 8, that is preferable. So listen, yes, he says in verse 8, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, this is what I would have told the young version of myself sitting in that pew, gripped so much by that question that Sunday morning. What happens to a believer in the moment in which he or she dies? Here's what happens. Our, we leave our bodies, what, what in us that is material, immaterial rather, our souls leave our bodies. We are in that moment away from our bodies, but we are with the Lord. With the Lord in, in, in a way that, that, that is, is odd, it's, it's hard to conceive, right? Uh, to be away from the body, to be bodiless and yet present with the Lord is an, an odd reality. And yet the reality is, Paul says, it is preferable We would rather that happen. So when a believer dies and their soul goes to be with the Lord, we are speaking rightly when we say they are in a better place. They would rather be experiencing this reality. And yet, that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is the resurrection. Again, go back to verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. Our ultimate hope is not to be unclothed, it is not to be bodiless, but we would rather be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is why theologians have termed this reality of the believer who dies and is away from the body and present with the Lord, yet does not yet have the resurrected body. They've referred to this state of being as the intermediate state. 
If you've ever heard that phrase, the intermediate state, this is what it's referring to. The intermediate, the word intermediate means between two times. And the reason that we refer to the death of a believer prior to the resurrection as the intermediate state is because it's a state between the destruction of this body and before the resurrection of our bodies. And so, as the believer dies, the answer is, though we do not yet have our resurrected bodies, which will come at the return of Christ, nonetheless, we are still with the Lord, and it is preferable. In fact, it is so preferable that Paul says that he would rather be at home with the Lord and away from the body. It is so preferable that, that when we went through Philippians, you remember Paul said to the Philippians where he was weighing, what would be better? Would it be better for me to continue on with you or to die? And he acknowledged to die would be preferable because he would be with the Lord. So, for the believer to die means that in our souls we are present with the Lord, which is glorious, and yet we await something even more glorious, the resurrection of our bodies and the making of the new heavens and the new earth. So, this then leads us to our fifth and final question. What do we do until that day? What do we do until the day that we are away from the body and present with the Lord? Or what do we do until that day when Christ returns? And the answer is that we courageously walk by faith, aiming to please God. We courageously walk by faith, aiming to please God. The reason I write we courageously walk is because of verses 6 and 8. In verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Or verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. Now, if you've been following along for the last number of weeks, you know that the phrase Paul has been using repeatedly all the way since the beginning of chapter 4 is, so we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We don't grow weary as believers and decide, I cannot keep pressing on and following Jesus. It's costing me too much. What's the way of saying that positively? We do not lose heart, but rather instead we, I think the answer is given to us in verses 6 and 8, we are always of good courage. We don't lose heart, but we are of good courage. We, we press on. We persevere in obeying Jesus Christ. We know that, that glory is coming, and so we keep pressing on courageously obeying. But that's not all we do. We courageously walk by faith. The reason I say that is because of verse 7. I'll read verse 6 again. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith not by sight. Paul has just made reference in chapter 4, verse 18. We looked at this uh, just a couple weeks ago. Paul says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul acknowledges that what he's talking about as the believer's ultimate hope, our resurrection bodies, we do not yet see them. All we see is this body, this tent in which we groan. It's wasting away. And yet Paul says, here's what we have to do as believers. You cannot live your life simply based on what you see. If you live your life simply based on what you see, then you have no reason for hope. Because all you see is this individual's body wasting away and decaying and dying. This individual's body wasting away and decaying and dying. What we see with our eyes makes it look like everything is hopeless. So Paul says, here's what you have to do. Instead of walking by what you see, you walk by faith. You believe that what God has said is true even if you don't see it. 
And if you live that way, and you know that the resurrection is coming, then what costly obedience is not worth it? Is anything too much, even if it costs you your life to obey Jesus? Surely you can see by faith that it's worth it. Because if we die, we're home with the Lord, waiting for the day when Christ will raise our bodies from the grave. So what do we do until that day? We courageously walk by faith. And then I add the phrase, aiming to please God. Why? Because of verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So Paul says, when we're with the Lord, obviously our aim consistently is going to be to please God. That was what eternity will look like, a life of pleasing and honoring the Lord. But Paul says, even if we're not home, even as we are away, even as we are here in this age, we also need to make it our aim to please God. The the ultimate purpose of your life, if someone were to say, what is it that you are about? What is your goal? One thing you could say is, I aim to please God, to honor God, to bring attention and glory to God. But then Paul gives us a reason why we should make it our aim to please God. And here's what he says in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that verse can be quite confusing, can't it? It can be confusing to us because, one, it seems to talk about works, right? This is a judgment scene, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, and yet we're receiving Uh, based on what we have done. It, in fact, mentions we're receiving what is due us, whether good or evil. Now, for this reason, because it seems to have this this language, uh, clearly, of us getting a judgment, in some ways, based on our deeds, our works, some have said, well, then this can't be the picture of final judgment, Because clearly, our final judgment, we are brought into the kingdom of Christ simply by faith, not by works, in the finished work of Christ alone, who lived and died and was raised for us. And therefore, some have said, since we know that we're saved by faith alone, not by works, Paul makes that very clear, as does the rest of the New Testament, this must be a judgment that is somehow separated from that final judgment where believers and unbelievers stand before the judgment seat of God. This must be a judgment that only contains believers. And in this judgment that only contains believers, we will be judged based on our deeds, and this is a judgment then according to works. A judgment where the Lord gives us rewards based on what we've done or not done, whether we've done good, whether we've done evil. Now, if you take that route, it perhaps solves some problems I don't think that's what's going on, though. I think verse 10 is simply talking about final judgment, where believers and unbelievers gather before the Lord to be judged on that final day. Why do I think this is a scene that contains both believers and unbelievers standing before the Lord in final judgment? It's because of the very last phrase of verse 10, whether good or evil. In our minds, we might say, believers, sometimes we do good, sometimes we do evil. But when you look at the Bible, these are two categories that are starkly divided. 
Those who do good are those who know Christ, and those who do evil are those who do not know Christ. Let me give you just a taste of this. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See the divide? Those who have done good, life. Those who have done evil, wrath. Or 3 John, verse 11. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So it seems that the Bible gives us a stark divide. So that when Paul then mentions in verse 10, individuals are judged based on whether they have done good or whether they have done evil, it seems to me that this is a judgment where you have believers and unbelievers present in judgment before God. Well, if unbelievers and believers are present before God and this is a picture of final judgment, then why in the world is he referencing us based on what we have done, being judged based on our deeds, our works? Because aren't we saved apart from works by faith in Christ alone? Yes, we are. But if you look at every judgment scene in the Bible, works are brought up. Think of Matthew 25. He separates the sheep and the goats. He says to the sheep, come enter the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. He says to the goats, go to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he mentions their works, doesn't he? For, he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was sick, you visited me. I was naked, you clothed me. He says to the goats, I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. He brings up their works. Why? The reason in judgment scenes in the Bible our works are brought up is because they vindicate whether or not we have faith. They make evident whether or not we have faith. Think of James. Think of the book of James. He says, if you have faith, you'll have works. I mean, could you imagine... God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you through your son. And Abraham says, I believe you. And then God says, okay, then I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham says, not going to do it, but I believe you. No, the way that Abraham showed he had faith was by his work of being willing to sacrifice his son. This is what James says. He says, you tell me that you have faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. And that's what's going to happen on the final day when we stand before God in judgment. The Lord will bring up our good deeds. The aim of our hearts to please Him will be known by all as evidence of the fact that He calls us His sheep, His own. What this means then is if you claim to be a believer and you have no desire in your heart, to obey and please God, then you are lacking the fruit necessary that gives evidence that one has life. You may not know Him. And many on that final day, Jesus will say, will say, Lord, Lord. And I will say, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. If this morning you are not making it your aim to please God, then I want to plead with you to repent and believe. If this morning you know Him 
And that is indeed your aim. Your, your life is, is witness to the fact that He has given you His Holy Spirit who is at work within you, changing and altering your desires. The way the prophets said it was this, the Spirit would cause us to walk in His ways. If the Spirit is not causing you to want to fight sin and pursue obedience, then you need to repent believe. If indeed the Spirit is doing that in your heart, I want to plead with you, pursue it all the more. Make it your aim in this life to please God. Don't let other things distract you from that. So there are a lot of questions here this text answers. Our ultimate hope, what happens to us when we die? But in the end, this text reminds us of why we live. We live to please God. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to end our service by coming to the table. We're going to eat and we're going to drink together this meal that the Lord has given us to celebrate continually in remembrance of Him. The way we're going to come to the table is I'm going to have a couple of pastors come forward and they're going to set out cups. The cups are going to be stacked too high. The top couple have juice, the bottom couple have bread. And then we're going to come out exiting our rows to the outside and come around and take one of those stacks of two cups. You can separate them and then we'll eat the bread together and we'll drink the cup together. But as we do that, It will be our way of saying, Jesus, we have heard your command that our lives should be aimed at pleasing you. And we want to answer you this morning. As we eat and as we drink, we've heard your word and by faith, our answer is yes. In other words, we will profess this morning that we are persevering and following Christ. So I'm going to ask whichever two of the pastors are going to come serve for us this morning, Tom and Nathan. If they would come, and they'll begin putting out then the cups for you. But let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll come to the table, professing our faith and obedience in Christ. Father, thank you for the work of Jesus Christ for us. Thank you that he lived and died and was raised so that we might have life. And now, Father, Would you carry out the work of your Spirit in us and continue causing us to walk in your ways? This morning, if we've been walking in sin and ignoring it, may we bear evidence that we know you by repenting of it. And Lord, if any do not know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would repent and believe. And we thank you for salvation. Thank you for the work of Christ. For it's in his name we pray.